Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Chase. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for August 11th, 2021. Flying solo tonight. Jay's uh, under the weather. He's, uh, despite being vaccinated, he has the COVID. So we're wishing him a speedy recovery. Hopefully he won't have it uh, too bad and he'll be not back next week. So uh, a lot of good books this week. Uh, just a reminder, as always, we have the DC Spotlight, which was super long this week. Tons of books from DC once again. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of thinking back fondly to that time when everyone was saying, oh, DC is folding up shop, only six, seven books this week. Man, next week they have nine, and that feels like a respite uh, because this week, again, it was, uh, it was like 14 books. There was a couple of free um, comic day books as well. And then, of course, they usually have an anthology or two, uh, and that, that's like four. But, you know, we, Batman uh, Urban Legends is out this week, and those are a couple of them are 20-page stories. So that's, you know, that adds to it. There's four stories in there. So that's, I mean, it's great on one hand because we talked for a long time about how we think the anthology model can work. And it does seem to be working at least for, for Batman urban legends, but it just makes for some really long episodes. So if the episodes are getting too long, please reach out and let us know. It is a concern that I have. Uh, I mean, three hours is, is a long time. <laughs> um, so we're, we're trying to think of ways to kind of trim that down. Maybe we'll stop talking about every single book. Uh, I'm just not, just not sure at this point. So uh, anyway, let's dive into the books for Tonight, first one I'm going to talk about is A Man Among Ye from Image Comics, Top Cow. Uh, it's written by Stephanie Phillips. The art is by Josh George. Colors by John Kalis. Letters by Troy Petrie. And this is continuing the sort of historically accurate uh, uh, tale of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, who were pirates in the late 18th century. <laughs> we know that Stephanie Phillips is a big history buff. Her father's a history professor. And we've had her on the show, and she's talked in the past about how difficult it is to find like real true accounts of um, actual events that, that happened to these women. So she's sort of taken it upon herself to separate fact from fiction in a way um, and, and kind of give her best guess about uh, what's going on uh, or, or what went on with these, uh, these characters back in the day. And, uh, and really what ends up happening is she just gets to tell a story with, uh, you know, these real life characters, these colorful female pirates from the late 1800s where the gloves are off, like the sky's the limit. She can tell any story she wants to, because again, as, as much research as she tries to do the, the real history, the real story just isn't there. So uh, what she has crafted does feel like it, it could be what happened. I mean, who knows, um, you know, their adventures and uh, the, the women have, very uh, authentic voices. Uh, I, I am, I'm sort of glad. I mean, we, we all know the pirate speak, right? Like our matey walk the plank and all that sort of thing, but uh, she doesn't fall into those tropes and she doesn't use sort of a, you know, traditional cliched pirate dialect. And she gives these uh, female characters more of a, an authentic modern voice. And I think it works for the, for the story. As far as the art goes, Josh George's art is, is beautiful. Um, that is the, the one thing that's probably not that accurate. Uh, you know, I, I sort of doubt that these women were, were as beautiful as Josh George uh, drew them uh, or does draw them here, but, uh, but that's okay. You know, I don't mind it. They, they're certainly easy on the eyes. His, his artwork's very detailed. It flows really well. Uh, that may be the one sort of change. You know, I, I talked in the past about 
um, you know, Craig Sermock not doing the, the second arc and being a little disappointed. And that only lasted until I, I opened up issue five and saw what an incredible artwork we're getting from uh, Josh George. And his his artwork does have, it, it's maybe not quite as action oriented or kinetic as Sermark's, but his art has a, a softness to it, which suits these female characters. And it, it, it feels a little more natural and a little more flowing, if that makes sense. Um, so it certainly suits the the story arc that we've had so far in the second arc with the women sort of establishing relationships. There's still plenty of action, but it's, it's uh, a lot to do with their, uh, how they're relating to each other and how they can come to rely on each other to get out of these crazy pirate situations that they're in, I guess you'll say. So, um, this story, this story, this book continues to be just a, a real delight. It's just pure comic fun. And uh, I would recommend it to anybody who just wants to read a, a fun comic. You, know, you don't need to know a whole lot going in. It, uh, you, you don't even, I would say, don't even necessarily need to read the first arc to be able to pick this up and um, and enjoy it for, for what it is. So it is a book that I, I recommend, um, you know, we talk a lot about Stephanie Phillips books on this podcast because she tends to write really good stuff. Uh, you know, there's a reason that we chose her as a, you know, up and coming star for, uh, for 2020 on the comic source awards this year. So, uh, all right, next up, I'm going to talk about a book from aftershock comics. It's called Campisi, the dragon incident issue. Number one, it's written by James Patrick. The art and colors are by Marco Licati. Letters by Rachel Deering, and uh, this writer James Patrick, he's the one that wrote the uh, the kaiju heist story, where there was a, a gang of criminals that were basically trying to pull off a, a heist in the middle of um, like a, what is the equivalent of a hurricane warning <clears throat> in Florida, but but rather than a hurricane making landfall, it was a kaiju. It was a world where kaiju are just a thing, you know, just a another sort of natural disaster. So this is sort of similar in the way that this world um, of Campisi is a world where dragons exist and everybody just sort of accepts it. They're rare. They're not something that uh, human beings have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, but they are out there. And so what happens when you have uh, basically a mob enforcer, kind of a fixer type guy, who looks after a certain neighborhood, a certain part of the the territory for this mob boss and a dragon comes calling for whatever reason, what are the consequences of that? And, and that's sort of the story that uh, James Patrick is unfolding here. Um, And so it's intriguing. I I like the sensibility of this story, much like I like the sensibility that James Patrick brought to the, the Kaiju high story. It's, it's mixing the mundane or, Maybe not even the mundane, maybe that's the wrong word, you know, because this is sort of, you know, good fellas or what have you. So it is colorful characters in their own right, just in terms of, you know, the mob or organized crime. But you take that sort of classic story, that that fictional trope, and you add in something completely out of the blue, completely out of left field, like a kaiju, or in this case, a dragon. And uh, there's still plenty that's familiar in terms of the relatability of the characters and, you know, these are good fellas, you know, for lack of a better term, these are mob uh, people. And so you, they're familiar to you in, in their character and the way they act. 
but how are they going to react when there's a dragon to to take care of right so that's the that's the fun of it so it's a pretty interesting story i think that the the art does suit the story that james patrick is telling similar to the artist he worked with on um on the kaiju high story which i think it was mateo monaco uh in that uh in that instance this time it's uh it's marco lacati uh, i am sort of curious to see him work with an artist who styles a little more clean um and what that would bring to a story he's telling but his storytelling style is not necessarily that clean. So maybe it wouldn't work. I'm not, I'm not real sure, but um, the, the style that Marco brings here is, is definitely suitable to the story. And the other thing that's interesting is the, uh, the choice that the letterist Rachel Deering uses to, uh, to put the word balloon, they're all square, they're all rectangular. So that's interesting and adds a different feel uh, to the story as well so yeah i'm i'm a fan of james patrick after um the the kaiju high story and now uh with the first issue of campisi uh similarly impressed so i think it's a it's a good job from him uh all right up next it's another aftershock title this is the second issue uh and i was a big fan of the first issue when it dropped it's clans of Bellari. it's written by brothers peter blackie and rob blackie we have art by Daniel Maine. Colors are by Carlos Lopez. Letters are by Taylor Esposito. We talked a lot last time about what the, the clans of the Bellari are and how uh, what the rules are. You're not allowed to move between clan uh, to clan. You've got to follow the rules. The rules are very strict. Each clan has a specific role to play in the, the society and in the economy of the, the world of Bellari. You're, you're not allowed to do work that's outside of your clan. They're all sort of interdependent on each other. And in the second issue, we sort of learn why we get the we get the origin of the clans with people leaving Earth. Uh, two thousand, uh, I think it's about two thousand. It actually says many generations ago is is what it actually says. And then when we do move up to modern times, it, it says over one hundred generations later, which you know, generations about twenty years. So if it's over a hundred, yeah, it's, it's, you know, over 2000 years. Um, but with that sort of origin of, of how everyone came to Bellari and why things evolved the way they have, you can, you can see the cracks, right? And, and that was the point of the, the first issue in a way beyond introducing us to the, the world of Bellari and these different clans and the roles that they play. It was also to start showing the cracks in society and why these, you know, this sort of, very structured society is, is sort of set up to fail uh, right from the beginning because we as humans, we, we crave creativity, we crave freedom, we crave independence. And to be in such a structured society with such rigid roles, in my mind, it's, it's just setting yourself up for failure. And if you're advanced to the point that you can you know, take a long journey into space, you would think that it's a society that would have learned that lesson long ago. And, and it, it does seem in the origin section of, of this issue, it does seem like uh, the woman who was responsible for creating the technology that allowed uh, humans to leave their galaxy. She was smart enough to know that. Uh, but I guess she was overruled by, by others, uh, whether in a, a quest for power or, or they just didn't want to follow her leadership. 
uh, for whatever reason. Um, and now it's to the point where, yeah, there are some cracks starting to show and we meet the heads of the clans here. Uh, we meet also the, the head of the sort of the space station that orbits the planet. And he wants to become uh, a clan in and of itself. And it sort of seems like he craves power. And um, one thing that can happen in a society like this, I think, is, yes, as it begins to fracture, rather than having these different clans that each rule equally, there ends up being a, somebody who fills in those cracks and absorbs all the clans to themselves. And you end up with some sort of despotic ruler, right? Some sort of tyrant that wields power over uh, everyone. And all of a sudden, instead of having these equal clans and trying to keep things um, on level footing for all the citizens, everybody ends up serving the, the ego and the power of, of one man. Um, conversely, what could happen is the, the citizenry can rise up and realize that, Hey, the way we've been doing things is, is not correct. And we need to, we need to course correct uh, before something terrible happens. So, uh, that's sort of the other part of the story that's being told here with uh, with Gummy and his daughter, who wants to be uh, a pilot, and she doesn't, Taya is her name, she doesn't even realize, she sees the actions of her father, her adopted father, and she knows that he bristles against the rules as well, but she doesn't understand the things that he's gone through. She doesn't understand the history uh, she doesn't understand how he came to have adopted her, uh, but he he opens up in this issue. And going from that idea of a structured society that's sort of set up to fail and, and seeing the, the bigger picture, the broader strokes that uh, the Blackie brothers have created here, here um, through meeting the, the heads of the clan and that that guy who's in charge of the space station, you know, that gives us the political overview, the machinations and the, you know, puppet strings of the people in power. The story of Gummy and Taya, his, his adopted daughter, that sort of brings it home in a, in a relatable way, right? Like these people that have power and are making the decisions, that's sort of the, the big picture stuff that you can look at in terms of the political story. But what is, what is the personal price to be paid? for the people that live in this society. And that's where the story of Taya and Gummy comes in. And, and to me, they're, they're both equally fascinating because one is built on emotion and the other is sort of built on, on logic, right? One is the big picture, the other is more intimate. And so the Blackie brothers have done a great job of balancing the drama with both of those. And ultimately I think the, the best resolution or the, or the best outcome for the story maybe to have those two sort of different plot threads collide and come together in some way. Uh, and that's typically what would happen in, in something like a big um, blockbuster movie or, or something like that, or a television show. And, and I think the Blackies come from that world. So I would not be surprised to see this story take that, um, that sort of path, but I have no idea. I haven't, I haven't read any of it uh, beyond this, uh, the second issue. Uh, as far as the art goes by Daniel Maine, the line work is, um, it's very solid. It's, it's not flashy, but it's, it, it tells the story well. The storytelling from panel to panel is great, good transitions. 
uh, the color work, I think, is where this, uh, the artwork in the book really shines. Um, very subtle colors and uh, typically bright colors when needed, which helps sell that uh, vision of a future in a, in a science fiction sort of a story. So in my mind, another great title from Aftershock, who I should also mention, they've put out 100 titles since 2015. They have a little logo on their cover. So that's, um, that's impressive, you know, a hundred titles in, uh, in less than six years or right around six years. That's, uh, that's, like I said, that's impressive. So congrats to, uh, to Mike Martz and, uh, and Joe Pruitt and uh, Lee Kramer and, and the rest of the crew over there at, uh, at Aftershock. Obviously we're big fans. We talk about a lot of their books. So uh, kudos to, uh, to all of them. Uh, all right. Up next, my first Marvel book of the week. And uh, this happens to be Jay's book of the, the week as well. He absolutely loved it. Uh, but it's Daredevil. It's Lockdown Part 3 from writer Chip Zdarsky. Uh, I should also mention it's, uh, it's issue 33. It's from writer Chip Zdarsky. We have Marco Tichetto as the artist. Marcia Menez on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Ended with a cliffhanger last issue where we saw Electra finally had hunted down a bullseye who was out there just randomly killing citizens on the streets of New York. And just when she thought she was going to have the drop on him, more bullseyes showed up. So more than one bullseye, what the heck's going on? How is that possible? And Electra was not in a, in a good position. So we get, we find out the reason why there are more than one bullseye. We get the resolution of, of that fight, uh, of that battle, but certainly not the resolution of, of the war that Electra basically is, is waging against these, uh, these bullseyes, I guess we'll call them. Um, and so I, again, don't want to spoil, I have to keep it spoiler free, but what happens with Electra in this issue at the end of that fight with bullseye and then what's teased as coming up next, because like I said, the, the war against bullseye or the fight, with bullseye is definitely not over. Uh, but what's teased has me very excited uh, for what's to come with this daredevil version of Electra in her, her next round of, uh, of battle with, with bullseye. It should be a heck of a lot of fun. The other part of the issue is daredevil. He's still in, in prison. Uh, you know, we saw last issue that he discovered that the warden was basically using inmates at the prison to, test some weird drug called Resid. Um, and it seemed like Daredevil, I don't know if he was actually affected by it or not, but he is he acting? I, you know, I had said at the end of last issue, it, he finally, Matt finally felt like he was regaining some agency and he was going to start acting like Daredevil again. And then in this issue, I'm kind of questioning that. Is he acting like Daredevil or is he going beyond what he should be doing? Has he been affected by that behavior altering drug as well? And what does it mean long-term? You know, obviously if, if the powers that be find out that the events of this issue are colored by some sort of mind altering substance, he may, you know, they may forgive him of, of, you know, what he's done in terms of, you know, attacking the warden and, and taking matters into his own hands. I mean, he was 
in a way, sort of deputized by the FBI. You know, the FBI came to him and offered him the deal and said, hey, we need you to find out what's going on in this prison, inside the walls of this prison, because we know something's not kosher. Uh, and, you know, he turned down the deal technically because he didn't feel like he deserved to have his sentence commuted. But he's still Daredevil. He's still Matt Murdock. He's still going to fight for the truth and fight for what's right. So does that does that sort of desire justify what happens in this issue? I, I don't know. You know, is he, he turned down the deal. I keep going back to, he turned down the deal. So he's not technically deputized, not really acting in the best interest or acting on behalf of the FBI, I should say. Um, so is it still okay what he does here? And what exactly has he done uh, is, is the other question. Cause it's only hinted at, but we definitely should be finding out next issue. So uh, a little bit of a setup issue did get the answer to, to, you know, what happened with the first round of Electra and Bullseye, which was very intriguing and, um, and it's going to lead to something even more interesting. And then, you know, what's going on with Matt. So in a way, a bit of a setup issue, um, but I can't wait to see what this sets up. And maybe the most telling thing of all is when you get to the last page and it says next issue, it's got a, one of those classic Daredevil uh, stained glass window covers, which, you know, all I can think about is Born Again from uh, DJ Chichester and uh, uh, and Lee Weeks, um, which is a fantastic story. One of my favorite Daredevil stories of, uh, of all time. So, um, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens next uh and obviously stained glass you know very prominent in the catholic religion and we know that uh daredevil's catholic and it's a big part of his character so it, uh, it always works when when we get those stained glass covers uh all right up next it's uh, an image book that i've talked about i think every single issue that's come out i've talked about and i still feel like there's not enough people reading this book it's deep beyond. We're up to issue seven. It's written by Mirka Andolfo and David Goy. We have art by Andrea Brocardo. Colors are by Barbara Nascenzo. Letters by Maurizio Clausi. And oh my God, has this book come so far. Uh, from the beginning, when it felt like a small story about a dystopian future Earth that was contaminated, monsters living in the ocean, and just uh, you know, little bubbles of society here or there living under domes. And uh, apparently it was going to be a story about a scientist who was going out looking for his girlfriend who was sort of out in the, the dangerous world outside of those, those bubbles. So such a simple concept and, and certainly not wholly original, a story we've seen before. But what this creative team has done is they've, from that small idea, they've expanded and expanded and expanded and expanded to the point where this is a sprawling science fiction epic with alien worlds and other dimensions and time travel, but not in a way that you think uh, because of this other dimension that, that the people travel to time goes by so much faster there. Um, you know, when you, you want to talk about centuries going by, uh, whereas, you know, a few, only a few years go by on our earth. So, this story continues to impress me because what they've done, how they've struck this balance and world built so well 
is because they did start so small and they started from the point of, yes, we meet the scientist, Paul, whose overriding motivation is the love and emotion he feels for the, his co-scientist, Pam, who he worked alongside and, and was in love with. And so that always drove the story. That was the momentum of the story. That was the engine that drove the story at the beginning was his motivation and everything he was doing and the characters he met along the way that pulled it, got pulled in and whatnot. It was all stemming from a place of emotion. And despite how much the series has grown in scope and in events and sort of in ambition, emotion and relationships have stayed at the center. And it's, it's given the story, this really, grounded feel where despite how crazy these ideas are and how cool and futuristic and, and sort of out there, there's always a touch point for the reader because there's always the emotion that underlies, whether it's the emotion for Paul and how he feels towards Pam or uh, the emotion that these characters who've now crossed over into this other world or universe or dimension or whatever you want to call it, are feeling uh, about uh, each other in this sort of new frontier and you know what it means because time does pass so differently there what can they do in terms of of what they owe to the people they left behind um and and should they go back and you know every decision is colored by by their feelings so that that emotional motivation that was the engine of the story early on to take us on this path. It, it still remains there to some extent, despite these crazy ideas. So super impressive storytelling. I never would have imagined that this story would have gotten there. Um, I, I just remember the, the cool design look of the logo deep beyond and uh, the colorful artwork is, is actually, I was like, you know what, let me, let me, this looks interesting deep beyond. I haven't heard anything about that. Let me go ahead and check out the first issue. And they did such a great job, Mirka Andolfo and David Goy, the, the writers, they did such a great job of making it relatable with that emotion. Uh, and then the Andrea Bucrado art was fantastic. And the Barbara Nascenzo colors that initially pulled me in are, are sufficiently bright um, and, and very classic comic booky feeling that, uh, that I, was, I enjoyed the art. You know, I think the art's outstanding. And so just that whole package of issue one, even though it is a story that felt so much smaller in scope, it hooked me right away. And, you know, as the story started to expand and the tension and stakes increased with each subsequent issue, I was just blown away to the point where, you know, you learn about this other dimension and some of the characters travel there. Um, and yeah, at that point, I'm just, I'm, I'm wholly invested. Um, so just super impressed with this entire creative team and what they've built here. Um, and I know I'm just talking about this series extremely vaguely um, and, and giving away some, some stuff from previous issues. I haven't mentioned anything that happens in this issue at all. Uh, Cause again, I don't want to spoil, but all I will say about this issue uh, specifically is we get a little bit more backstory of, how um, the base that contains the portal to this other 
world or this other dimension or universe or whatever you want to call it, we get some backstory on that and the scientists that lived there and what their end goal plan was for this other world. Um, and then we get uh, a big chunk of story with the, the people that are, that have gone to the other side and, and what their motivations may be and what their plans may be um, going forward. Do they want to come back home? Do they still want to try to fulfill the mission that the scientists at this base originally had? Um, and what does that sort of mean uh, for them? Because again, emotion is at the core of the story and it's what seems to be motivating, but juxtaposed against that is the fact that the beings that live in this other reality, this other world, um, emotion is, is not something they, they seem to feel at all. So it, it's sort of that contrast is very interesting uh, as well. Um, Cause it has a lot to do with the agency of the characters in the story in, in my mind. So really can't wait to see where this one goes and, uh, and highly recommend it. So deep beyond definitely should be reading it. Everybody. If you're, uh, if you're not uh, all right, on to my next book, it's another Marvel story uh, or issue. It's fantastic for a life story. We're up to issue number three, which is the 1980s. Uh, again, if you're not familiar with this concept of these life story uh, Marvel series, it's basically telling the stories of these Marvel characters in real time, right? So we had a previously had a Spider-Man one by Chip Zdarsky. Now we're getting the, the Fantastic Four life story from writer Mark Russell. The art is by Sean Izakazi. Nolan Woodard does the colors. We have Joe Caramagna on letters. Obviously the first issue was the sixties, seventies last time. And now we're up to the eighties. Um, and I talked a little bit previously about how the first issue, I felt like I just didn't get it. Um, I, it didn't feel like the fantastic four to me. And a lot of it had to do with sort of the setup that Mark Russell did. He played with the relationships between the characters. Um, for example, you know, we, we were always told in, in the regular Marvel universe that Ben Grimm and Reed Richards were, you know, best friends, college classmates and had a real connection. And so that sort of established a foundation for that relationship. And then in the first issue of life story, that that's not it at all, right? They don't even know each other. Um, when they go up in the, in the rocket ship and are, bomb, and are bombarded by cosmic rays. And so it changes the dynamic very much and sort of leads to some of the events in the first issue with Ben Grimm, not even being with the team for uh, long stretches at a time and whatnot. And so I, I sort of struggled with it with the second issue. Um, I, I enjoyed it much more and I started coming around to, to seeing what Mark Russell was trying to do. And I talked about it specifically. What, what I did was I sort of changed my perspective. I, I started looking at this as, okay, don't look at this as an alternate version of the Fantastic Four in the regular Marvel 616 universe. Th think of this as a what-if story where you know, any, anything is possible. Like, like don't come in with any preconceptions of thinking – that you know who the Fantastic Four are, who these characters are, and what their relationships to each other are. And once I was able to do that, I enjoyed the second issue immensely. Now, that being said, this third issue, I feel like 
I have to do less of that. This feels more like, or these characters feel more like the the characters that that I've known, you know, my whole life reading the Fantastic Four, um, as opposed to that first issue where they they felt a little bit out of character here or there. From Reed and his um, neglectfulness of Sue, which we saw last issue, Sue left him for Namor. Um, so the sorrow and the obsessiveness of Reed that sort of are the warring parts of his personality, uh, you know, the regret that he feels when he realizes that he's neglected his family, but that he can't help himself because of his obsessiveness to solve problems and answer questions. That's all here. Um, Ben Grimm, you know, standing by his side, that's here. Uh, We don't get a lot of Sue in this issue, uh, but what we do get feels authentic but overwhelmingly, this is a Johnny Storm issue, and Johnny narrates it, and it feels a hundred percent like the Johnny Storm that that we know, but maybe a little older, maybe a little more mature, uh, with a little more wisdom looking back on things. Which again, it makes complete sense when you talk about you know this life story concept, things happening in real time. Johnny would be you know, 20 years now, if not longer, having been the the human torch and what are the lessons that he's learned and what is his unique perspective on, you know, life in in the Fantastic Four, which has always been much more of a family than a superhero team. And uh, this is brilliant. This is maybe my favorite thing Mark Russell's ever written it because it's just spectacular. Um, And it, as far as Johnny Storm himself, I sort of think that the whole issue can be can be summed up um, very simply when uh, Johnny meets somebody at the United Nations and the guy basically calls Johnny a cheerful cynic. And that is that juxtaposition, that that contrast of character is exactly what I'm talking about, right? An older Johnny, who has seen so much that he can't help but have a level of cynicism. But as we all know, Johnny Storm at his core is a very cheerful person, a very cheerful character. And so I think Mark Russell nails that completely. And it has a very uh, emotional end with some action that takes place. And um, the artwork by uh, Sean Izaki is, is fantastic. Um so yeah, I, I'm I'm almost feeling bad that I, I not that I bad mouth the first issue, but uh, you know I, I I think somebody listening to my review of the first issue, I, I hope nobody said okay, well I'm not I'm not going to read it because Jace didn't like it. Not that you guys give me that much credit, but um, issue two was was so much better than issue three. I mean, this is just inspired storytelling. It's just absolutely incredible, um, and it. it reminds me of, of one other thing that I always say is you always have to give a series at least two or three issues. First issues are so hard to do. And so, you know, you always got to come back for at least the second issue to see if, if things start clicking and, and they're completely clicking here. Um, and so this is the eighties. We still have the the nineties, the two thousands and the 2010s to go, I guess. So three more, um, three more issues of this. And, uh, and the consequences and the fallout of what happened in this issue should be interesting uh, going forward. But yeah, this, this blew me away. 
was so good. Uh, just absolutely loved it. And it, it's the eighties, right? So there's plenty of familiar events, I'll say, you know, f- familiar settings in terms of the cold war and who the president is and all that sort of thing. And it, it all plays expertly into the story that, uh, that Mark Russell is trying to tell. So this may, uh, this may end up on my list for best single issues of the year. It's really that good. So kudos to, uh, to the entire creative team. All right. Up next, uh, Miles Morales, Spider-Man. We're up to issue number 29. It's from writer Saladin Ahmed. Chris Allen handles the art on this issue. David Curiel as color artist, Corey Petit on letters. Um, I thought the art was okay. Uh, pretty solid. It's maybe not quite as clean as what we're used to with Carmen Canero. Uh, but I think it, it's, it's, like I said, it's pretty solid. There's uh, some good transitions. There's some good storytelling here. Um, the perspective at times felt a little weird. And it's just not quite as clean as Carmen's art, which is why I, it's, I, I do hope Carmen is, I, I hope she just needed a month off. I think her art is just uh, spectacular. So no, uh, no slight to Chris Allen. I think he definitely has a, a future. I'm not familiar with his art. I haven't seen anything from him before that I can remember, but uh, he definitely has a future uh, drawing comics. I think he just needs uh, a little more experience. Um, one other thing I'll mention is Corey Petit. There are some specific panels and it's usually, um, or, or bubbles, it, it's when uh, Miles is writing in his journal how he gives it much more of a kind of a natural handwriting look as opposed to like a typed font that we get in the word balloons. And I, I appreciated that. Um, you know, it's clear that this is miles voice and it, it just, it looks a little more, I don't know, for lack of a better word, homemade. Uh, and it helps sell the idea that this, these are uh, miles intimate thoughts. As far as the story itself, it's basically a fallout from the clone saga. So we get, somewhat of a resolution with the one clone that that was able to sort of survive that um that battle last issue shift um who's somewhat of a a shape changer himself and we also get a new costume for miles which i'm not sure how i feel about it uh i kind of liked the costume that miles had um so we're sticking with the same color themes of the black and red um so yeah i'm just i don't know i I like i like the splash of blue usually but again i know we're trying to to separate miles from uh, peter parker but i did like the old costume i think just a little bit better although this does look even less like like it's a an evolution right like moving away from having him you know wear the classic red and blue spider-man costume um, you know, first we, we got rid of the blue and it was black and red, but it still, you know, had the webs and whatnot and, and looked sort of similar to what we've seen in the past. Um, but now we're moving even further away from that. So I, I guess in that way, I like it, but I, I don't know, it doesn't actually look that tight either, which I, I, I just like the idea of, of Spider-Man being a very sort of sleek figure with, you know, a tight costume as opposed to something that's a little more baggy, but we'll see. We'll see if it it grows on me or not, but definitely get a good look on it on the last page from Chris Allen. And that's an excellent panel. Can't complain about that uh, panel where it shows the costume off at all. So 
uh, Saladin Ahmed continues to be a, a great writer for Miles Morales. I think he gives him a great voice. Uh, I think I think he's the only person who's written it long term, other than Bendis. And I'm I'm starting to to like his take on Miles even more than what Bendis did. Obviously, Bendis created him, but I like the voice. I like the dialogue. I like the scripting of uh, of Saladin Ahmed more than uh, than what Bendis gave us. So, still enjoying Miles Morales Spider Man. Um, enjoying it of the of the two Spider Man characters right now. He's got the better title. You know, uh, amazing hasn't been amazing lately. Uh, you know, pardon the pun, but um, but Miles Morales has been. And and I I did sort of you know, wonder about the necessity of the clone war, why we needed to have it. And it, it wasn't my favorite thing that Saladin had done. Uh, but this issue feels like we're getting back on track. So do recommend it. Uh, all right. Up next, we have the silver coin. This is issue number five. This is the final issue of the first arc. And I say that because this was supposed to be the final issue overall, but it has sold so well that uh, the creator uh, Michael Walsh is going to give us more of it. And so we, we had issues. Uh, all the issues are drawn by Michael Walsh, but we had issues written by Chip Sardarsky, Ed Brisson, uh, Jeff Lemire, Kelly Thompson. And now this final issue is written by Michael Walsh himself. And Michael's handled the art throughout. And this final issue gives us the origin of the silver coin. And it's sufficiently terrifying and gross and spooky and all the things that it should be and if this was the last of it and the last of the, the silver coin stories we were going to get i think this origin of the silver coin and the curse that it possesses it would have been a great contained story with everything sort of tied up in a, a night nice neat package that being said, we get to the last page and Michael Walsh is there breaking the fourth wall talking to us and talking about how he's going to get to continue with the new lineup of writers, including Joshua Williamson, uh, Ram V, Vita Ayala, and Matt Rosenberg. And then you turn the page and we get a preview of the next one by Williamson, the next issue um, that's called High Score, where a little boy is who's uh, got a love of arcade fighting games is using the silver coin as his quarter to put in the game. I mean, that just sounds fascinating to me. So, you know, if you're a fan of, of things like the twilight zone, you know, um, tales from the dark side, um, you know, those, those types of uh, uh, outer limits, I guess would be another one. But those type of, of, of television shows, those anthologies where each issue kind of stands on its own and is creepy and out there and horrific and whatnot, but all, all with this throughput of the, the silver coin appearing in each issue, I think that you need to jump on this, right? If you haven't been reading silver coin and you like horror comics, you definitely need to jump on this. Um, so uh, I hope that we return to some of the, the previous stories in a way, even if it's only tangentially, especially the future story. I think that was the one that Lemire told, but very excited to see new talented creators come on and tell stories in this world that uh, Michael Walsh has created. I mean, when you talk about that lineup of writers, 
Chip Zdarsky, Kelly Thompson, Ed Brisson, Jeff Lemire. Like those are writers we talk about all the time. We talk about how amazing their books are. We review them because they're good and people like them and people buy them. I mean, those are, those are creators and writers that are at the top of their game. And then you talk about the next guys coming up, Joshua Williamson, Ram V, Vita Ayala, Matt Rosenberg. Again, that's a who's who. That's a who's who lineup. Those are creators whose work we cover all the time. People read them. Their books sell. I mean, Michael Walsh is getting the cream of the crop to tell stories in this world. And that's just fantastic. So if you're not reading Silver Coin, what the hell's wrong with you? You definitely need to be checking it out. And if you haven't read any of the previous four issues, you still can easily pick up this one. And the argument could be made, you could read this first. This could be issue one instead of issue five, because this is the origin of of the silver coin and uh, the curse that was uh, placed upon it. And the Michael Walsh art is, man, is it creepy, Um, especially the color work at times. And then what, what happens to... Yeah, I, I can't even, I, I don't want to spoil, but it gets pretty gross. I'll just put it that way. Uh, all right, on to the last book I'm going to talk about. This is my book of the week. It's Ordinary Gods, issue number two. It's from writer Kyle Higgins. We have art by Felipe Wantanabe, uh, Frank William on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, I don't even know where to start with this. Like we, we talked about the first issue of Ordinary Gods and in a way it's a, it's a cross between like, like Highlander and, and, and the matrix and just these really crazy ideas. We had Kyle on to talk about it. And it's this idea of these, these beings that are so powerful for lack of a better term, you call them gods. And they lived in a, a realm where they each presided over a land and the lands were named based on sort of the overarching characteristic of that land. So strength or love or um, what have you knowledge. Um, and at some point, these some of the gods come into the realization that they shouldn't be basically ruling in the way that they they were. They, they, you know, what right did they have or whatnot? And so there ends up being a civil war between the gods. And then what happens is the the rebellious gods that are trying to stop the despotic gods creates a uh, a machine to try to trap them. But the despotic gods discover it and they set it off and they use it on the rebellious gods instead and and where the trap is and and what the prison is the prison is earth uh and the intimation is that sending these gods these five gods to earth as their prison is what sparked life on earth and so they come to earth and they have reincarnated over time i guess first as single cell organisms and then as uh, animals over time and then eventually as humans. But the thing is, you don't remember that you're a God uh, in a way you're just an ordinary person. And, and that's sort of the setup. And in the the first issue, we meet this boy who is uh, apparently was the, he's the reincarnation of the God. That's the leader of uh, this group of five gods that have, have rebelled and he is awakened in a way and the other gods that have all have previously been awakened there's two of them that have awakened of the five and they're trying to convince this young boy christopher is his name 
that he is this, this God and that, you know, they need him, they need his leadership. They need him on their side and they need to go and find the, the other two. Meanwhile, uh, the, the sort of evil gods have, uh, have their own agents in our world. I'll put it that way to try to keep the gods from, uh, from awakening. And so the stakes are high and they don't even, these rebellious gods, they even acknowledge that they don't know like what happens if all five of the gods that are imprisoned here, wake up and return to their world. Because again, like I said, it's, it's intimated that the reason life on earth started is because these gods came here and started reincarnating over time. So if they were to leave, would our world end? What does that mean? What is, what are the past relationships that these characters have had mean, you know, Christopher, he, he doesn't even necessarily believe it at this point. He's still tied into the relationships of this life that he believed was, was the only life he's ever lived. So there's a lot there to be mined. And then on top of that, the other thing that Kyle has done and he talked about on the, the podcast was that with these beings being so powerful, even when they're not aware of who they are, they can't help but be important people. You know, so it's suggested that maybe Joseph Stalin, Abraham Lincoln, um, Albert Einstein, uh, you know, people like that, maybe the reason that they were geniuses or great leaders or conquerors or whatever was because they had that spark of uh, godly hood inside them. Um, and so we get some flashbacks in this issue it's, uh, on top of the main story with Christopher and um, these other gods that have been reincarnated, trying to convince him of who he is and uh, convince him that they need his help. There's also flashbacks to uh, a previous life for one of the gods that shows, again, how important they've been throughout history. And so I think that's a fast, another fascinating aspect of, of the story that can be explored. And once these gods are awakened and realize the importance they've had on history, does that affect their decision-making on do we return to the realm we came from and, and finish fighting the war we started? Do we stay here? What do we owe to humanity? What does it mean to be human because they've lived as humans for so long? Can they stay in touch with that humanity? Will they leave it all behind? Like there's, there's so many questions, so many questions and so many interesting ideas to be explored. And so when you couple all those ideas and very fast paced storytelling that Higgins is giving us here with this amazing uh, art from Felipe Watanabe, you end up getting just a, a, a perfect comic in my mind. Like this story I don't think can be told in any other medium as well as it's told as a comic, um, you know, telling it as, as kind of a long form television show. I mean, a, a film wouldn't work. The idea is too big. The film would have to be, you know, 40 hours long or something ridiculous. So then you think, Oh, we'll do it on, on TV, but man, the budget would have to be just insane um, to be able to do this. So uh, the scope of the story I think lends itself so well to telling in this medium and being able to flash back uh, to the past and uh, being able to, to show 
uh, panels and events that happened in that that other world, you know, in the land of strength or inspiration or cunning or savagery or guilt or, or whatever, you know, whichever those realms, um, you know, it, again, the comic book medium is, is perfectly suited. And uh, yeah, between this and Radiant Black, I mean, it's going to be hard. Going to be you're going to be hard pressed to get me to to choose another writer than Kyle Higgins for uh, for writer of the year in 2021. Man, I mean he's just he's nailing it. So if you're not reading Ordinary Gods, you got to pick this up. Don't sleep on this title. Um, you know, Radiant Black is is fun and it's super heroic and it's it's cosmic and uh, you know a lot of people have likened it to Invincible and. Um, and I, I agree, like it's it's subverted expectations and it's been a wild ride. But this ordinary gods, uh, I like even more in a way because it feels like it has more consequence. It feels in a way more. And, and I know it's going to sound weird because we're talking about gods being reincarnated throughout time from a different universe or dimension or reality or whatever. But this feels more grounded in a way. It feels more human, and perhaps it's that connection to uh, to human history, right? These gods have been reincarnated over time um, as important people like Stalin or uh, Abraham Lincoln or whomever um, that that lends it that weight. The story just has so much weight, so much gravitas that uh, I love it. It's so so good. Um, and when I first heard about it. And Kyle was describing it to me. I was like, oh, that, that sounds interesting. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Kyle's work. Let's check it out. But I wasn't expecting the, the weight of the story and how big it feels. Uh, it's just, it's absolutely fantastic. So uh, it gets my book of the week. Be sure you're checking out Ordinary Gods. Uh, I don't think I can overstate just how good that it is. Uh, so let me go ahead and give a rundown on some of the other titles you might want to be on the lookout for today. There's plenty of other good stuff. And as I mentioned, uh, if you want to hear about the DC stuff, remember the DC spotlights on Tuesdays have full spoilers. So, uh, so be aware. Uh, so at Aftershock, there is one more title that's out today. Actually, two more because um, one's an original graphic novel um, from Steve Orlando. Um, that's called Rainbow Bridge. I guess. Yeah, let me talk about that first because um, it's a whole heck of a lot of fun. Uh, it's written by Steve Orlando. Uh, and I thought that he had a co-writer. Yeah, Steve Fox uh, is a co-writer with him on that. And he's worked on things like Adventure Time and Steven Universe and the arts by Valentina Brancati. And it's basically about a boy who loves his dog so much that he travels to sort of a, a pet afterlife and goes on some uh, adventures with him. So it was a very, very enjoyable story. And I would say definitely a good story for young readers. Um, so I do uh, recommend that. And then the other uh, Aftershock book, it's one that we've talked about in detail, uh, spoiler free, obviously, uh, for the first two issues, it's Bunny Mask. Uh, and this would have been Jay's runner up for book of the week. And it that one continues to be a mystery, although we did get some clues to exactly what's going on with Bunny Mask. And um, we still don't know who the uh, we still don't know who Bunny Mask is. Um, you know, she shows up mysteriously whenever she wants, but we don't know who she is quite yet. But we do get some connections between Tyler and the sheriff uh, who, you know, discovered him in that cave all, all those many years ago and, and rescued him. Um, and they seem to have a connection. 
and we're getting some hints. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a fun ride. Uh, written by Paul Tobin, art by Andrew uh, Moody, and uh, yeah, great art by Andrew Moody. So if you're a fan of horror and creepy things, uh, I think you'll enjoy Bunny Mask for sure. Uh, okay, uh, I do also want to mention from Black Box Comics, there's a, a title called Gin Hunter Number One. And the creator actually reached out to me and wanted to come on the show and talk about it, but I, I just didn't have time to make it work with the auction that was going on. But it is out. I have had a chance to read it. It's fun. The art is really spectacular. Um, so again, Black Box Comics, kind of a smaller publisher, but I did want to give it a shout out. Uh, we also have Mighty Morphin number 10 over at Boom from uh, writer in front of the show, Ryan Parrott. Uh, over at DC, again, covered all these on the DC Spotlight. Batman 89, number one, based on the Tim Burton movie. That's going to bring a smile to a lot of people's faces. Uh, Batman Urban Legends, which I mentioned previously. Detective Comics, number 1041. Future State Gotham, number four. Hardware Season 1, number one, from um, Brandon Thomas, with art by Dennis Cowan and Bill Sienkiewicz. I Am Batman, number zero, written by John Ridley. Uh, Infinite Frontier, number 406, from Joshua Williamson. Joker number six from James Tynan, Justice League Last Ride number four of seven from Chip Zdarsky, and uh, Miguel Mondoka, which is my DC book of the week. And oh my God, the art by Miguel is so stunning. Like, I want to buy every page. Uh, that That's a book that, like, the artwork is so good. It deserves to always be together. The pages shouldn't be sold off separately. And <laughs> somebody needs to step up and buy the whole thing. Like, rather than having a page from that book, I would rather know that somebody owned the whole thing and it's together as one package. Um, I would love to be that person, but I don't know that I can afford that. Um, but yeah, the art is just fantastic. Uh, we also have Pennyworth number one of seven, which is uh, very similar to the Pennyworth TV show starring Alfred Pennyworth. Rorschach number 11, which is the penultimate issue of that series. And then Wonder Woman number 777 is also out this week from, uh, from DC. Uh, over at... IDW, we have Canto number three, uh, which is subtitled Lion, Lionhearted. Uh, it's a six-issue six series, and number two is out. Uh, at Image, Bitterroot number 15, the Eisner Award-winning series from uh, David F. Walker, Sanford Green. Uh, we mentioned Deep Beyond. We mentioned Ordinary Gods. We mentioned uh, Silver Coins. We, we talked about most of the, the uh, Image books that came out this week. Uh, over at Marvel, there's an Avengers Tech On number one of six, which is sort of one of those video game tie-in uh, books. We have Captain Marvel number 31, which I wanted to talk about, but I, I wanted to limit it because uh, Tuesday episodes have been so long lately. But written by Kelly Thompson, um, there's a new artist on the book. I, uh, it's an Asian artist. I can't remember the name. Uh, it slips my mind at the moment. But it's a fun story with... Um, with Carol's sister showing back up and her and Rhodey trying to go on vacation. So sort of a classic Marvel feel of, you know, heroes trying to take a break and hijinks ensue. Um, but it may have some, some longer consequences. We'll see. Uh, children, children of the Adam number six by Vita Ayala. I think this is the final issue of the series. It felt like a final issue, but I'm not sure if it's going to be continuing, but I, I loved the theme of, um, of this issue, which sort of encapsulated the theme that Vita Ayala had been building all along, which is sort of accepting who you are and not co-opting another identity, uh, but knowing that we each have 
our own identities and our own gifts and our own things to offer. And so there's no reason to go and try to be something you're not. Uh, that was very apparent in the story. And I thought it was very well done. Uh, Defenders number one of five from uh, Javier Rodriguez and Al Ewing uh, as the writers, which it felt very Defenders is what I'll say. And I have never been a big fan of the Defenders, um, but, you know, it's Doctor Strange putting together a team and you've got Silver Surfer and um, uh, who else? Uh, Betty, um, Betty Banner, I guess, um, as the Red Harpy is another one of the uh, team members. Um, there's a couple others. It, again, it, it just, it felt, it felt very defenders. And I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, um, but we know we have the death of Dr. Strange coming up. So I wonder how this might tie into that. So I don't know if you're a fan of the defenders and Dr. Strange, you're probably going to like it. I just thought it was, it was okay to maybe a little below average. So I didn't really care for the art either, but Again, if you're a Defenders fan, you probably want to pick it up. Uh, Star Wars The High Republic number eight is also out. Uh, we have Runaways number 38. There is a uh, X-Force number 22 issue, as well as an X-Men Legends number six, which is telling a, a heretofore untold X-Factor story. It's written by Peter David. And I, I think the art in that one is by Todd Nock. Um, but he maybe he just did the cover. Let me take a quick uh, peek. Um, you know, Peter David's uh, X Factor run is is beloved. So um, if you're one of those people that really loved it, you probably want to check it out. Yeah, Todd Nock does the uh, does the art for uh, for the interiors on that one. Uh, all right, let's see what else here from Scout Comics. Black Cotton number four of six, which has been a pretty big hit for them, is also out this week, um, and I guess that's it there's nothing else that's really uh popping out or uh standing out to me um that's where uh jay's always good to have on because he, he likes a lot of the more obscure stuff that uh, may be flying under my radar but uh be that as it may there's plenty of really great books out this week obviously pretty big dc week as <laughs> has been um the case recently but uh you know daredevil from from marvel the ordinary gods uh, fantastic. Uh, Deep Beyond continues to impress. The Fantastic Four Life Story, like I mentioned, is, is really spectacular. So tons of great books out this week. Hope you get down to your local comic shop and, and pick some of them up. And as always, we want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.